Welcome to Cosmic Controversy with author and veteran science journalist Bruce Dormany, host of the podcast that asks probing questions about today's aerospace and astronomy. Bruce is author of Distant Wanderers, The Search for Planets Beyond the Solar System, and a Forbes.com science contributor. Now, here's Bruce. Welcome to Episode 3 of Cosmic Controversy. Today, I'm honored to have as my guest John Logsdon, Professor Emeritus at George Washington University's Elliott School of International Affairs, where he was the founder and longtime director of the university's Space Policy Institute. Logsdon is the author of award-winning books on the space policy decisions of Presidents Kennedy, Nixon, and Reagan, as well as other space-related titles. In 2003, he was a member of the U.S. Space Shuttle Columbia Accident Investigation Board, and formerly Logston was a member of the NASA Advisory Council. Today, he joins us from his home in the Washington, D.C. area. Welcome, sir. Uh, glad to be with you. Thank you. Uh, let's get right to it. Uh, it's, it's hard to avoid talking about space or anything these days without mentioning the pandemic elephant in the room. Uh, how, is, how has the pandemic thus far affected space operations in any sense? Well, uh, I mean, the critical operations have gone on with kind of skeleton teams. Uh, the uh, uh, Demo 2 commercial crew launch went off on schedule. The uh, Mars rover Perseverance is still on schedule for a uh, late July launch. And uh, the rocket segments for the uh, tests of the space launch system arrived at Kennedy Space Center this week. So, I mean, there have been effects, uh, but but they have not really slowed down the critical projects. So it's amazing that things have been as operational as they have. I mean, people are all working from home, but yet doing so fairly effectively. Well, I mean, there are people on site uh, where they have to be, where there's no alternative, uh, you know, like launching the, the uh, uh, astronauts a couple of weeks ago. Uh, you, you had to have people in the launch control center. You couldn't do that from your uh, basement. So uh, there's staggered shifts. People are wearing protective equipment and things are moving forward. Right. Okay. Um, so now in terms of the uh, politics a bit. Let's let's talk about that because this is an election year um, and President Trump ha- had put forth the idea of sending a man and a woman or at least the, the, the NASA administration said it was going to be a man and a woman for the Artemis mission by 2024. And um, how has a pandemic affected that schedule, do you think? Well, it's not clear yet. Uh the, it certainly slowed it down a lot, not a lot, but slowed it down. Uh, uh, the critical steps that have to move forward now are, are developing the uh, landing systems. And the delays there is not the pandemic, it's the Congress. It's getting the money appropriated to pay for uh, a, a complex development program, which has to be ready in four years. Uh, there is a so-called green test of the big new rocket, the space launch system, uh, that's supposed to take place either later this year or early next year uh, before the uh, first actual launch of the SLS. And that has slowed down because uh, the people working on the booster uh, were not uh, were sent home uh, at, at the height of the pandemic. But again, the the pace is picking up a bit. So there will be delays, but nothing, I, I I still think making the 2024 date is requires a minor miracle in any uh, case. And if Trump is, uh, defeated in November, uh, do you think, uh, Joe Biden or whoever actually is elected for the Democrats, uh, will continue with the Artemis program? It's interesting you say whoever is actually elected. Uh, I'm I'm operating under the assumption that Mr. Biden will be the candidate. Uh, uh, He he uh, or his surrogates. He's he 
uh, has had two uh, well-known space veterans, former Senator Bill Nelson and former NASA Administrator Charlie Bolden, who have made a few statements on behalf of the Biden campaign, who have given the sense that the program will continue, maybe not driving to the 2024 date, but no sense of, of cancellation uh, as far as we can see so far. Now, what would you think if uh, Mr. Biden came in and said, well, you know, let's just forget about this whole Lunar Gateway idea and instead focus on going directly to Mars? Uh, and the second part of my question is, would that actually, would his saying so, would actually that, would that be a red herring of sorts to placate space advocates? Well, uh, first of all, let's establish that I think that's very unlikely I think there has been a, a growing consensus uh, that the moon is the appropriate first destination for human spaceflight uh, beyond the space station. And so uh, the people that, that are advising Biden are unlikely to say, uh, uh, well, forget about the moon and let's go to Mars. That happened back uh, in, in 2009 with President Obama, and that didn't turn out very well. Uh, in terms of, of support for the program. Uh, uh, I mean, when you say red herring, you think it's a way of, of actually canceling human exploration without taking blame for it. And, and uh, there's no indication from anybody associated with the Biden campaign uh, or, or the Democrats in general that that's uh, in the cards. Right. Okay. And um, I'm, you know, this is a question that I'm sure you've been asked a thousand times, but um, I'll ask it myself. Uh, since the, uh, the Cold War aside, why has no human returned to the lunar surface since 1972? Well, uh, come back in a year and a half and I'll give you a, a fuller <laughs> answer to this question. That's actually my current research project. Oh, is that is right? A book, is, is a book looking at why we have not been back to the moon since 1972, why we have not traveled beyond Earth, low Earth orbit. Uh, because four of the five presidents since Ronald Reagan, George H.W. Bush, uh, George W. Bush, Barack Obama, and Donald Trump have said we should go uh, uh, resume space exploration. And so far, nothing we haven't left. I mean, there have been preparations now for a number of years, but but we're still uh, uh, not going any further than than the than the distance between Washington and New York, between Earth and, and the space station. So uh, why? I think there there are reasons specific to each presidential initiative. Uh, and and uh, I could talk more time than we have about what those reasons are. And I think there's an underlying uncertainty on the part of the American public of whether it's something that uh, we want to at least spend government money doing. Uh, that that, that uh, having been to the moon, having made that journey, I think... <clears throat> Many people say, uh, you know, it's it wasn't worth the cost then, and and it's certainly not worth the cost now. Uh, I think it's going to take leadership to provide a convincing rationale, a convincing reason to go, uh, or some multi-billionaires with enough resources to do it with private money. Right. Um, well, since uh, the beginning of the space age. Uh, uh, aside from the politics involved in declaring let's go back to the moon, which president do you think was personally most enthusiastic about space travel and exploration? And um, obviously most people would point to John F. Kennedy, but uh, who from Eisenhower to Trump seemed to really love space the most? Oh, I think it's uh, kind of a neck-and-neck -neck race between Ronald Reagan and George H.W. Bush. Both of them uh, were visionaries as far as the space program was concerned uh, and, and really fans of everything associated with the space program. They both operated in a uh, context where uh, 
the federal deficit was growing. They were Republican presidents that that didn't want to uh, increase federal spending, and so they they didn't translate their personal like for space into programs that uh, uh, were executed. I mean, Bush uh, in on July twentieth, nineteen eighty nine, so the twentieth anniversary of the landing on the moon, said. Uh, back to the moon this time to stay and then on to Mars. But uh, that initiative was stillborn. The Congress wasn't interested. NASA wasn't even that enthusiastic uh, about it. Uh, That's the part of the story I've been writing in the past uh, uh, few months while I've been confined to my uh, home office. Right. Well, um, I happened to see a film 13 Days about the Cuban Missile Crisis, Uh, and it was interesting to me that the Cuban Missile Crisis took place, you know, well after the uh, initiative announced by JFK to return a, a man to the lunar surface and back safely. Um, how did the missile crisis influence NASA funding and the space program in general, or did it? No, not at all. Not at I all. Mean, uh, um, well, first of all. The Cuban Missile Crisis was not about money. <laughs> you know, it wasn't competition for uh, scarce federal funds. Uh, maybe uh, what you're intimating is the the fact that that uh, the Soviet Union, in that case, backed down and took its missiles out of Cuba, uh, reduced some of the uh, uh, motivation to compete with the Soviets in space. And I don't think that's the case. The Soviets were still uh, carrying out a series of firsts in 1962 uh, that that uh, put them in a, a position ahead of the United States, and and they were bragging about it. So uh, we there the the motivations that uh, led Kennedy in 1961 to say uh, uh, find me something in which we could win were still there in 1962. Right. Okay. Um- so how would you, I noticed, I was looking at some material uh, last night, and I came across a percentage. At the height of the space program in the early 60s or mid-60s, uh, or maybe during the Apollo era, I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, the total uh, amount of the uh, U.S. budget was about for NASA was about 5%. And today it's something on the order of 1%, is that correct? Well, uh, at its peak of uh, during Apollo in 1966, the NASA budget was, I think, 4.4% of the total federal budget. Okay. Now, now move the decimal point one space to the left. It's kind of 0.44. Yeah, so we're spending, in terms of national wealth or government budget, we're spending about one-tenth on space civil space now as we were during Apollo. And um, so how would you actually characterize the differences uh, between the early days of JFK's NASA and the NASA that we see today? Well, the JFK NASA was carrying out a mission that had the, uh, even literally, the highest national priority. It was a part of a uh, geopolitical competition with the Soviet Union. Uh, uh, and and in, you mentioned the Cuban Missile Crisis. I mean, it was a real competition. Uh, uh, there were threats of nuclear war. Uh, and so uh, uh, demonstrating to the rest of the world that the United States was the strongest power uh, and... and uh, uh, deserved to be the the global leader in setting the rules uh, of behavior uh, was was critically important to the national interest in the 60s and during Apollo. Today, that's not really the case. Space exploration, the space program, uh, is largely a discretionary activity with no driving external rationale or competition that goes to the core of our national interest. It's something that an advanced country does and, and something to be proud of, but it's, it's a very different relationship to uh, uh, national interest than it was back during Apollo. And um, 
You mentioned the fact that ne- that the Congress had not even funded the the lander aspect of the Artemis mission, uh, and that brings me to a point that is there a way I don't think the average person understands how NASA is really funded and the timelines for its funding. And so is there a way that we can revamp how NASA is funded instead of making well, it a political tool of whichever president is in power at the moment or the, or, uh, or Congress's, uh, uh, you know, whatever they, whatever yeah. suits them. Uh, well, let's, just to be clear, uh, Congress has not yet passed this year's budget, right. which has the money in for the lander. Okay. Uh, it's not that Congress has said no. It's, it's just that, uh, given all the focus on 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 the on the pandemic and and, and the current uh, racial and and police controversies, this is not at the top of the list to get done. Uh, the, the idea of getting NASA off budget and finding some other way to finance it. It's been everybody's fantasy uh, for many years, and I think it is a fantasy. Uh, Maybe because of what I just said. The program is not that important to the national interest, not that important to the public at large, to give it uh, an entitlement. And and all these financing off-budget ideas are basically making the space program an entitlement program and uh, I don't I don't think that that is an appropriate uh, step uh, I mean we the space advocates would love guaranteed money of course we would but uh, there, there's no compelling argument for doing that other than the stability of the program if you want a nice quiet modest space science program, Maybe it could be like the National Science Foundation. But uh, if you want human spaceflight, if you want to be the world's leader in space, I think it has to be a policy decision, political decision, funded through the normal process of government funding. But I think uh, space advocates and interested uh, uh, citizens who were uh, interested in space are, are, are disappointed, frankly. I mean, we've been talking about back to the moon and on the Mars or on the Mars without, you know, you know, going by the moon and in, in, you know, several different uh, variations of that. And it just frustrates uh, the hell out of people. (laughs) Well, I mean, the Uh, advocacy side of me, Bruce feels that way. I mean, uh, you know, I, I was at the first launch to the moon at Apollo 11. I was up early in the morning, uh, out at, at the uh, operations building and watched uh, Armstrong Aldrin and Collins walk by me on the way to the moon. In fact, you were an invited. Was, you were an invited guest. I was. I was going to mention that later on, but yeah, you were invited guest. Exactly. Well, right? no, I, I had a press pass. Oh, okay. <laughs> uh, which is kind of invited. But, uh, <laughs> okay. uh, uh, but, right. uh, I by by that time I had written a first book called "The Decision to Go to the Moon." Uh, and 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 so knew why Apollo was happening. Uh, uh, so, uh, but but the analyst side of me says there's no uh, no reason uh, to give the space program special treatment. Uh, it got it during the '60s for the reasons we've already discussed. Uh, Richard Nixon uh, in March of 1970. Uh, in reaction to uh, uh, a very ambitious post-Apollo plan, said, no, we're not going to Mars after the moon, and that the space program had to compete with other things that are important to us uh, for for government funding. And that's been the policy uh, from then till now. Uh, and, and so the question is, can we get beyond Earth orbit on the current amount of spending, maybe a little more. I mean, the the uh, Trump administration has asked for a three billion dollar increase in the NASA uh, budget uh, to to do Artemis on the current schedule. Uh, we'll see whether the country is willing to to pony up the money to do that. And um, what about the uh, timelines? You mentioned Mars. Okay, so. 
What about the realistic timelines? I get this question from people I interact with, uh, you know, the general public, and they say, oh, you cover space and astronomy. I say, yeah. And they, usually their first question is, when are we going to get to Mars, you know, in a, in a crude sense? What, what is your take on realistically when we, we'll, we'll see humans on Mars? Uh, my optimist side of me says sometime in the 2030s. My uh, realist says late 2030s, early 2040s. Uh, my pessimist says probably never. Uh, <laughs> okay. uh, first, we've got to get back to the moon. First, we've got to carry through to completion uh, a, a, a national commitment to get beyond Earth orbit uh, and, and show that we're willing to do that. The tools to get to the moon are almost 80% of the tools you need to get to Mars in terms of a big rocket spaceship. Uh, we're, we're learning how to land on Mars, this rover that's going in July. Uh, we'll, we'll do entry, descent, and landing uh, as, as Curiosity did five or six years ago. Uh, so, you know, the experience gained from return to the moon will help us on the path to Mars. Right. Okay. And, um, I mean, if we had, if we had been going back to the lunar surface, you know, in the late seventies and the eighties, um, we would have already been on the, on, on the Martian surface by now with, with the human astronauts. Don't you think? Maybe, uh, you know, if, 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 if you could carry out a, a uh, occupancy kind of uh, permanent uh, presence on the moon. Uh, you know, there are people that talk about lunar cities and, and big installations. I think that's kind of, again, uh, overly optimistic. It's, it's, it's a pretty barren place up there. Uh, but, uh, you know, we've been in Antarctica. Uh, there's, there's, I, I looked this up recently. In the summer in Antarctica, there's something like 4,000 people living there and about 1,000 people over winter. Uh, so, you know, if you could get those kind of numbers on the moon. Uh, and, and then I think there, there would be a kind of uh, almost imperative to say, all right, now, now we're there, we're established, what's next? And, and really, there aren't many other places, if any other place to go except Mars. Right. What about other actors like uh, SpaceX or Blue Origin or even the Chinese? Is there any chance that, that they will beat the NASA to Mars? Or is SpaceX's effort inherently tied to, are the, are the commercial uh, space entities inside the U.S., do you think there's any chance that they would try to finance a, uh, a, voy a, a crude voyage to Mars? without NASA support? Well, I think you have to deconstruct that a little bit. Uh, uh, Elon Musk has made it very clear that his vision uh, is, is to establish uh, a permanent human presence on Mars. Uh, and and that, that's, he, he says, why he founded SpaceX is to achieve that goal. And he's set out a vision of a million-person city on Mars. Uh, and he's building a, a new uh, spacecraft, uh, which keeps blowing up, uh, that, that is, is a step in that direction. Uh, that will take a lot more resources than Mr. Musk currently has. And so he almost certainly would have to do it in partnership with the government. Uh, Blue Origin, uh, Jeff Bezos has never talked much about Mars. He's talked about the moon, and in particular, in establishing millions of people living and working in space station-like outposts uh, between the Earth and the moon and, and, and around the moon, uh, uh, and, and moving heavy industry and pollution and uh, things that, that, that are nasty on Earth uh, into space so that we have a, a pristine or more pristine planet. Uh, Bezos 
has a lot more resources than uh, uh, Musk does uh, and and is taking slow steps in that direction. So uh, it's conceivable that that uh, uh, Musk, I'm sorry, that Bezos uh, and and uh, could be uh, the first private operator to carry people to the moon. Um, I say moon and not Mars. Right. Uh, right. And you mentioned China, and the Chinese government uh, operates according to central planning. Uh, has laid out a series of space plans. Has made them public. They're totally transparent, and has done more or less exactly what it says it's going to do. Uh, and and what China says is during the 2020s, it will build and operate a space station in Earth orbit and then think about sending humans to the moon in the 2030s. Uh, and I see no reason uh, if, if their political system stays sa- as stable as it is now that they will not, uh, certainly can do that. Uh, so... Uh, by the 2030s, you're saying the the Chinese by the can, 2030s, right? The same timeline that you give for perhaps like your optimistic timeline for for uh, American astronauts or Americans at least, uh, whether they're NASA or not, uh, right. to be on the on the Martian surface. Is that correct? On Mars. On Mars. I'm saying yeah. Chi- China's target is the Moon, not Mars. That's right. Yeah, but I mean that, yeah. that, but yeah. the 2030s timeline for the Chinese. Uh, sending a crew to the lunar surface kind of is the same timeline that you optimistically are hoping that some sort of American ent- entity, whether it's a commercial space venture or, right. or a public-private partnership we'll, we'll, or NASA We'll itself. get to Mars. Right. But the, again, that presumes that we're on the moon in the 20s. Right. Uh, 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 it presumes that you know whether or not Artemis succeeds in in making 2024, and as I said, I think it'd take a minor miracle to make that date. But uh, all the all the components except the landing system are, in a sense, already built uh, and and have to be tested. Uh, so I see no reason why uh, uh, Americans under government sponsorship will not be back on the moon sometime by the end of the 2020s. And what about the uh, European Space Agency? Uh, I think they're ranked the basically number two, or the Russians are ranked number two in terms of space. Uh, that, I'm going to get to the rankings of different countries in terms of space in a later question. Yeah. But um, So is there a possibility that ESA, the European Space Agency, and NASA, and maybe... SpaceX or Blue Origin would join together for a, a Mars uh, crewed mission. Well, you know, I hate to sound like a broken record, but I think we have to focus on the moon first. Okay. And and uh, ESA, the, the spacecraft that will take people to the moon, which is called Orion, has a European-built power unit uh, called the service module. Uh which is it, it, so ESA, uh, and that's done through the European Space Agency, is an intimate part of our planning for uh, our lunar program. Uh, Mars at this point is just stuff on paper. Uh, there's, there's no hardware being developed uh, that that uh, uh, for humans to Mars, uh, except as an extension of what we're developing to get to the moon. Right. Okay. Um, and is there any possibility that after we get to the moon, and we don't know what our relate our, our political relations are going to be with China, you know, in ten or fifteen or twenty years' time, we just have no idea. Uh, well, I don't know. I guess someone <laughs> could make guesses. <laughs> but uh, is there any possibility uh, that you know, looking from this uh, juncture at twenty twenty? Thinking on down the road, twenty or thirty years from now, is there a possibility that China and the U.S. could team up for a joint mission to Mars? Well, let me answer that by kind of analogy. If we were in the United States in 1983, Ronald Reagan, uh, president, and calling the Soviet Union the evil empire, 
would you have thought that the United States and Russia would be in an intimate interdependent partnership uh, to keep people alive, living and working in space on the space station? No, no. Uh, <laughs> uh, you know, so uh, things evolve and you don't know the way they will evolve. Uh, and, and, and indeed, uh, with the uh, collapse of the Soviet Union and the end of the Cold War, uh, the, Russia has become a, uh, a partner in human spaceflight to the United States. Uh, and and, and uh, we could not, not be operating the International Space Station without Russian participation. We've made ourselves dependent on Russia, and Russia's made itself dependent on us. So uh, could that happen with China down the road? Well, you know, it could. Uh, it would take a, a change in, in a lot of things for it to happen, but it could happen. Right. Okay. So if you had to rank uh, the current uh, public space powers, how would you rank them? Um, you know, among Russia, China, U.S., Europe, uh, Israel? Uh, yeah, well, uh, out of every dollar spent on space in the world by governments, over 60 cents comes from the United States. We are in terms of spending, and this includes our national security space program, which is larger than the NASA budget. Uh, uh, we are by far the biggest spender on space in the world. China is second. Uh, Russia and Europe are close to one another these days because the Russian spending on space has diminished in the past decade or so. So, and, and India is spending a fair amount of money. Right. Yeah. So, so those are the countries I would say. Uh, I mean, in, in Europe, you have the European Space Agency with a healthy budget. You have the European Union with a multi-euro multi budget, I guess I should say. Uh, you have... Uh, uh, France and Germany with significant national space programs. So uh, when you add up all the European spending together, I would say they're actually uh, equivalent or maybe even a little more than China, and therefore number two. So what, uh, what about the uh, Space Force uh, that uh, President Trump initiated? Uh, wh what is your take on this new branch of the Armed Forces and uh, why, why did it seem to get to be so so roundly criticized by the mainstream media? Well, let's first of all say that that it's not Trump's idea. Uh, debating a reorganization of our military space program's been going on for at least uh, a decade. Uh, there were a couple of champions in Congress. Uh, of, of the idea of a separate space force. And when Trump learned of the idea, he jumped on it. It's the kind of thing that is attractive to Mr. Trump. And I, I think I don't want to go well beyond that comment. Uh, but it's not his idea. Uh, and and, and uh, what it becomes is, is an open question. At this point, it's a reorganization so that we do a better job of uh, developing and uh, uh, space capabilities and training our troops to use them. Uh, it's Space Force would not fight a war. Uh, that's the U.S. Space Command. That's what's called a combatant command. The Space Force job is to uh, train and equip uh, people to use space capabilities. Now, uh, it, I know you've been paying attention. Yesterday, the Department of Defense uh, issued a new security space strategy, which sets out a path for our space program that, that says we're going to develop the capabilities to dominate the space arena, to win it. If, if a warfare broke out, we would be able to win. Uh, and, and the Space Force will be very much involved in, in developing those capabilities. So, uh, you know, it's, it's less than a year old. Uh, 
it, it doesn't have a uniform yet. It's got a flag. Uh, and, and it's just beginning to accrue uh, uh, the people that will constitute the Space Force. So let's see how it evolves. And if uh, there's a change of administrations, uh, if uh, Mr. Biden is elected, do you think uh, he would uh, continue with the, the Space Force? Uh, it's a good question. I mean, I'm hesitating because uh, and I've not thought that. So this is a top of the head answer. And I think the answer is yes. I think there is enough momentum behind the argument that a separately organized national security space program uh, is appropriate given the importance of space capabilities to our security. Um, but you, you can make arguments on either side of that. We'll give, uh, we'll give the uh, listeners an, a, an idea of what the, the Space for, Force actually does, because um, a lot of it is uh, ground-based uh, laser development to counter, um, counteract uh, you know, potentially killer astronauts in low Earth orbit. Am I wrong? Well, not killer astronauts. I mean, killer, not killer astronauts, excuse me. Killer satellites, excuse me. Misspoke. Okay, go ahead. Yeah, I mean, we do, you know, we don't have stormtroopers in space yet. But that's a perception that a lot of people had, that that's what it was going to be. And I just, people would say this and I, my eyes would roll. I mean, what, what's going on in space? The, uh, China, Russia in particular, uh, other countries to a lesser degree that are uh, uh, opponents, political opponents of the United States and, and um, military opponents of the United States have, have uh, developed so-called counter space capabilities. And that's a reflection that the United States has made space capabilities central to our ability to conduct military operations. We, we have created a, a very powerful space capability, but it's also vulnerable to attack. Uh, so what the Space Force is trying to do, among other things, is protect those capabilities and make sure that, uh, that, that uh, no opponent could deny us the ability to use space. Uh, for for uh, to protect our interests, so that means uh, yes, ground-based systems, but also space-based uh, anti-anti satellites. Uh, we don't really know, in any degree of of clarity, what's going on up there. We don't. We need to manage what's going on in in space traffic. Uh, the Soviet Union has had a little satellites that have been tracking some of our uh, intelligence assets. What are they up to? And uh, could they be uh, uh, launch an attack on a multi-billion dollar critical asset? Uh, th th those are the sort of things that concern the, the uh, people that are putting together the Space Force. Right. Um, and uh, we've had the, these capabilities for anti-satellite technology um, you know, most of the spacefaring nations have had this capability. Am I wrong? And the Space Force, uh, as it's set out now, is basically a kind of a reorganization of existing resources, or, or is that an overstatement? No, that's correct. I mean, it is at this point, it's a reorganization of the national security space resources and capabilities that we already have. But uh, again, this strategy that came out yesterday said we're going to develop new capabilities because the threat is growing and because space is no longer a sanctuary free from the threat of conflict, but a, a war fighting domain. Uh, you know, the language in these uh, uh, DOD uh, strategy documents is, is kind of colorful. Um, and, and so if space becomes a war fighting domain, we want to be able to uh, prevail in any conflict that, that occurs there. And, and so that's, that's what the Space Force is about, is developing the capabilities uh, so that they can be used by a different part of the military. Uh, 
uh, uh, to to fight and win conflicts in space. And uh, just personally, in terms of uh, crude exploration beyond the moon and Mars, where would you like to see us go? Well, there's not many places to go. Uh, uh, I mean, we're certainly not going to land on Venus. Uh, Venus is a nasty place covered with sulfurous clouds and uh, temperatures in in the uh, uh, triple digits. Uh, uh, There are people who are fascinated with the idea of of travel to the moons of either Jupiter or Saturn as fascinating objects to visit and to actually land on. Uh, and there was a school of thought, it's, it's gotten a little quiet in recent years, that's talked about uh, you, you wouldn't land on an asteroid. There's not enough gravity to hold you there. But you might rendezvous with an asteroid. And, and if uh, there's the thought that some asteroids have very precious resources, rare metals and uh, things of, of high economic value that could be mined uh, so, uh, you know, there, there are a few places to go, but I think realistically, and given the distances involved, until we get to warp drive, uh, we're not going very far beyond Mars. Well, you, set me, up, just, you set me up for the next two questions. And, uh, so do you recall that uh, NASA once uh, funded a, a study for an orbital flight to Venus? That was back in the early 60s, I believe, around 60 or 61. Yeah, yeah, I know you've mentioned that it's in our conversations before today. Right. I, I am not familiar with that uh, study. Okay. Uh, All right. Well, uh, I mean, that's one alternative. certainly didn't get anywhere. <laughs> no, no, but actually uh, Venus is easier to get to than Mars because— uh, Yeah, but who would want to go there? <laughs> well, you could, you could <laughs> still learn a lot, and it would be a trial run for uh, for Mars, I think, uh, you know, an orbital mission, uh, in the same way that sending— Apollo 8 to the lunar uh, orbit was a, a trial run for a landing. But anyway, that's my, that's my take. But um, so what about, you mentioned in, until we get to warp drive, and of course warp drive is a long way away. Um, but what about the propulsion technology? Uh, JFK himself looked into nuclear propulsion, space propulsion. and uh, uh, Yeah, we were close to demonstrating uh, a flight demonstration of a nuclear rocket uh, in, in, in the sixties and, and with Nixon's decision to end exploration after Apollo, uh, that program was called NERVA was canceled. Uh, I think realistically, if we're going to make repeated trips to Mars, we need to develop, uh, some form of nuclear thermal propulsion to cut the travel time, uh, from six months or eight months down to two or three months. That's right. Even, I, I, I've seen four even, months, actually. Even there, uh, it, it's a long way beyond Mars to get it to any place else. Right. Okay. Uh, so and we're, com- we're coming to the end, but I just wanted to ask a couple of, couple of three uh, questions. Uh, the, um, the, the one that puzzles everybody, I think, is we hear a lot of talk about commercial space and about crude commercial space and, and, uh, and whatnot. But how can we really, uh, what, what's going to ultimately drive commercial space uh, as a viable uh, private entity, a money-making entity, do you think? Is it going to be space tourism? Well, first of all, there is a multi-billion dollar commercial space industry that already exists. The satellite industry, which, but, I, but I'm talking about yeah. SpaceX and, and uh, Blue Origin and all those. No, no, I'm talking about uh, Intelsat and Inmarsat and uh, SES and and the people that uh, that own and operate communications the satellites. Sa- the satellite, yeah, that's right. But I'm yeah. I'm, I'm talking yeah. about crude uh, efforts. No, uh, it. I mean, if, if there are going to be uh, profit making uh, human travel. Uh, into orbit or to to distant destinations, uh, I think uh, you got to lower the cost uh, by maybe two orders of magnitude, uh, and and uh, it's still it's going to be adventure tourism for rich people. 
I, I don't see, of, uh, you know, and here I'm, I'm in in opposition to people like Elon Musk, and he's a lot smarter and a lot richer than I am. Uh, 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 the idea that thousands or millions of people will someday travel to space, uh, uh, I, I, I'm skeptical. Now, I said I was at the Apollo 11 launch. While I was there, I signed up with Pan Am for a trip to the moon. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that didn't do me much good. Uh, will will the successor three times removed of Pan American Airlines be flying in regular service to the moon in 2150? Uh, I'm not smart enough to know that. Right, but the but again, the you know there is a viable business model for IntelSat and these commercial uh, satellite right. operators, but but uh, aside from rich tourists who want to do a translunar flight uh, or asteroid mining to try to make asteroid mining profitable. And and uh, I think we're a long way from that until we develop uh, a much more efficient ways of, of uh, crew transfer over long distances of space. Um, I, yeah, I, 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 I agree. I don't you. see, uh, you know, Bezos talks about millions of people working in space. Well, if there's work to be done that turns a profit for whoever owns the business uh, at, at whatever the costs are, well, then that could happen. Uh, but, but I don't think we're anywhere near that yet. And I assume that you saw uh, the uh, 2001 A Space Odyssey in 1968, and then in 69 you saw that you were at the Apollo 11 launch. Um Describe the Apollo 11 launch a bit for us. I mean, what what was the atmosphere there? I watched it on television live. I was old enough to see it. Uh, but you were actually um, yeah, there at I mean, the launch. What was it? Set the scene. What was it like for you? Well, I mean, first of all, you knew that it was going to be a piece of human history forever. Uh, that, that this first voyage to land on another celestial body would go down in human history. Uh, and so being present for, it's like, you know, watching Columbus sail out of Harbor, uh, for, with, with the knowledge of what would follow from Columbus, not the bad things. Uh, uh, it, uh, it was a hot and humid Florida July morning. I remember, uh, sitting, I, I did have a press pass, so I was at the press site. There are a lot of pictures of the Apollo 11 launch with me in the picture. Uh, right at the time of the launch. Uh, uh, sitting there watching people from all over the world, realizing that, that the whole world's attention was focused on that little piece of real estate. Uh, remember watching Dave Garraway and Norman Mailer talking to one another uh, out in front of me and saying, I'd like to have been able to overhear that conversation. Those are probably not names that many of your listeners uh, can relate to. Uh, uh, and then, you know, the, the the launch happened exactly when it was supposed to happen. There were no delays. You saw the flames. Uh, you you uh, got verified that the laws of physics were correct. You Light traveled a lot faster than sound. And so it was seven or eight seconds before the sound, and the sound was was uh, a, a physical feeling. You could feel the sound waves pay through your body, uh, and 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 uh, again, people that saw Saturn V launches will never forget them. The shuttle, when the solid rockets launched, the shuttle left very quickly with with all liquid propulsion on Saturn V. Uh, it was uh, a very slow and, and almost majestic liftoff. Uh, 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 the, the rocket seemed to just kind of hang there until it, it, it gained the speed and, and then left. Uh, and you were, you were uh, kind of, you know, then you want a cigarette. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, except I don't smoke. Yeah. Uh, uh, so it was a remarkable experience. I saw three Apollo launches, and and they are uh, uh, seared in my mind as unforgettable experiences. And uh, the final question, 
is what bugs you most? Uh, what you know when you go to bed at night and you are thinking about space? Um, what bugs you most about what's not being done or what should be done? Or you wake up in the morning, you're having your coffee, and you're reading the headlines or some trade paper, uh, uh, you know, aerospace trade paper, and you and you're looking at the headlines. Uh, what bugs you personally about what should we be doing that we're not? Uh, well, I think what what bugs me, and it goes back to the experience of being at Apollo 11, watching these people walk by me on the way to the moon. I want to have that experience again. I want to see people leave this planet and go somewhere else again. Uh, and the, 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 what bugs me is we seem to have lost the spirit, the the sense of excitement and wonder. Uh, we've substituted video games and movies for the reality. And so those of us that, that experience the reality would like to see it happen again. Right. Okay. Well, thank you so much, uh, uh, author and, and uh, celebrated uh, space analyst John Logston. Thank you so much, John, for taking, uh, taking some time to speak to me and our listeners uh, today. I really appreciate it. Okay. Happy to be with you. Thank you so much. Take care. This has been Cosmic Controversy with Bruce Dormany. Please follow Bruce on Facebook, on Twitter at BDormany, or his regular posts on Forbes.com. Until next time, clear skies. Music provided by RFM.